the first two weeks we did 500 miles and that's basically because it was all bridge building winching you know you were you were basically um, just dragging that car through the mud you know there are times when you think we're never going to make this Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Mary. And greetings to all of you listening worldwide. And if you're new to the podcast, thanks for checking it out. Glad to have you here. And every week I bring you a different bit of internal combustion entertainment. And sometimes it's a documentary style piece. Other times it's an interview. But either way, it's all about the people and the stories behind the machines. And if you enjoy the show, take a minute to tap that follow button. Click that five star rating and leave me a review. But most importantly, share the podcast with some friends and help get the word out. And the audience is growing every week. All right, well, who remembers the Camel Trophy? For Land Rover fans, it was like the Le Mans of four-wheeling. For nearly two decades, it was the world's premier off-road competition testing man and machine to the limit, struggling through the mud in Guyana in the rainy season, slogging through Africa in stifling heat and paying bribes to local officials along the way, or crossing the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, or fording through water so deep that it's cresting over the dashboard. It was more than marketing. It was high adventure. Well, my guest today knows all about it. His name is Nick Dimbleby, and Nick is a professional photographer who's had a very close association with Land Rover over the course of his long career. He's a veteran of four Camel Trophy events, and he's the author of a new book called Camel Trophy, The Definitive History. I caught up with Nick recently while he was on location in the southwest of England, and we talked about his work, his passion for Land Rovers, and of course, the book. So I hope you enjoy Tales of the Camel Trophy with my guest, Nick Dimbleby. That's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between. Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, here's my interview with Nick Dimbleby, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Nick, thank you for joining me, and um, I'm excited to hear about your book, but you know, I think we should tell people a little bit about your photography career. You quickly established yourself as the go-to guy if someone had an assignment that required sleeping outside, hanging out of helicopters, being in uh, austere conditions. You're, you're really kind of an adventure photographer, aren't you? Yeah, I guess um, it's one of those things that, like a lot of situations and careers, I sort of fell into it, really. It, it, it sort of happened by accident. I've always been, well, since uh, sort of you know, uh, being a preteen, 11, 12-year-old, I, I got into photography and Land Rovers came as part of that. I, was, I, I grew up in the countryside in Somerset in, in the UK and um, basically was surrounded by Land Rovers, farming, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, as a result, the two became together. And of course, Land Rover is a great way of getting out to the outdoors. As um, I started to do more and more pictures of Land Rovers, which which was um, for magazines and then later for uh, Land Rover itself, 
that got me out to do some pretty amazing stuff, which, as you say, involved hanging out of helicopters, sleeping outdoors, traveling the world. Um, I've been lucky enough to have been to 80 countries um, over the last 25 years of my career. So, yeah, it's been great. Really, uh, really feel very privileged to have done it. Yeah. And of course, I don't want to pigeonhole you because your photography extends far beyond the Land Rover brand. But that early association, I think, has held you in good stead throughout your career. There's always been Land Rover work for you. Absolutely. I first started doing work with Land Rover in 1997 when I was uh, 24 years old. And um, I'm very, very grateful to be still working with the company now, which is fantastic. But as you say, I've also worked with with many other um, different brands over my career, including Bentley, Aston Martin, Bugatti, uh, and also doing other work for other clients, BAE Systems, uh, which do all the aeronautical and, and military and all sorts of other weird and wacky stuff that, that's been really cool to shoot. So yeah, everything from jet fighters through to tanks and Land Rovers and uh, you know Bugattis and everything in between. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting job. Right. A few uh, Bentleys, uh, some Lamar work. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, very much yeah. so. Yes, I was with, with Bentley back in uh, the early 2000s when they did their Le Mans campaign. Um, with the uh, the Speed Eight and um, and yeah, obviously with Aston Martin is also doing some Ramon stuff. So yeah, Nurburgring as well. So it's it's been it's been great, really uh, varied career, and and um, very very grateful to be doing it. So Nick, you you've had this long relationship with Land Rover, and I suppose that you have some natural affinity for pushing the limits, perhaps not being so comfortable all the time. I mean, after all, you could be a studio photographer if you chose to do that exclusively, but you like getting out there. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoy about it is the fact that um, you get to go out and see the world and also live out the back of the Land Rover. You know, that that for me is actually quite special. And um, back in uh, in 2020, we did a, an event in Namibia with the um, New Defender, which was which was great because we actually spent a week on a little bit of a, a circuit exploring into the desert and um, up in the mountains, which is an absolutely stunning place. And the vehicle was so at home there. But it was one of those things because this was the first trip anyone had done with the New Defender. And I was also a little bit like, oh, this is going to be quite interesting because obviously I've done many, many trips in, in um, the, the, the old Defender but never um, a trip in in the new one. And actually, it was really great because I really felt immediately that this is a Defender. You know, you really felt at home. You know, for example, I have a little bit of a, a, as a lot of people do, you have your own little spaces. You like to put your water bottle somewhere or you like some wet wipe somewhere or your head torch or, um, you know, my camera bag sits on the back seat and my cameras are accessible so I can turn around and reach and get them. And so when I started to put the stuff in the car, it sort of started to sort of fill at home. And it was that thing where you open the door and you reached your camera and it was like, okay, so the door's a little bit thicker. It's not quite the same as the as the old Defender, but it still feels like a Defender. And it was that I really felt was was, was quite special. So yeah, living outdoors and, and, and having those sort of expedition trips is, is something I really, really enjoy. And actually, um, yeah, need to do some more. <laughs> I suppose it makes it less like work at times. I mean, you're getting paid to to travel and to have these wonderful experiences in an, in a different place, a different culture. I do I do pinch myself every now and again. Yes, it's it's true. Although there is a there's always a thing people sometimes say, oh, you know, it's fantastic you get to do these amazing things and I I totally agree, but the only thing is you're never actually traveling on your own agenda, which is something that um 
is sometimes can be a little bit annoying. So uh, one example of this I'll give you is I was um, working on Camel Trophy in 1998, which was the first time they had a very long range trip and with adventure sports uh, as part of it. And in the last week, the South African and the French teams were both um, neck and neck. So either team could could win. So because obviously they were, you know, the media was interested in those winning teams. I was one of the official photographers. So I was sent with the French team and there was another photographer that was sent with the South African team. So we basically were, were living with them and, and, and running with them. But obviously they set the agenda of where they wanted to go. So at that point, we were down in the... Um, southern part of uh, Argentina in Tierra del Fuego, which is obviously an absolutely amazing, stunning place. And um, one of the places we went past was the Perito Moreno Glacier. And um, I was like, oh, we've got to go there. We've got to, you know, we're never going to be, we may never, ever be in this place again. So I sort of go on the radio and say to the team, look, guys, you know, we're, we're just literally, you know, 10K away from this glacier. Can we just go and, and have a little stop and maybe take some pictures and just just enjoy it? And they were like, nope, sorry, we've got this competition to win. We're going to win this competition. And that's it. They were heads down. And we literally drove past this this turning. And I remember looking at the turning thinking, I'm not going to go there then. (laughs) And that's it. So I've never been there, not been there since. And that was in 1998. So maybe one day I'll get a chance to go back and actually visit it for for real. But I was was close, but not quite close enough. You touched on the competitive spirit that that those guys had. And I'm really interested to get into that as we dive into the Camel Trophy. You've written this book, Camel Trophy, The Definitive History, and it's published by Porter Press in the UK. The Camel Trophy was called at one time the toughest endurance event in motorsport. I wonder if you agree with that that assessment. I think it's a pretty fair comment, to be honest. So I was lucky enough to do the last four Camel Trophies, which was 96, 97, 98. There was no event in 99, but there was in 2000, which um, you may know is was actually in boats in the South Pacific. So a completely different uh, trip to the previous ones. So 96 was Kalimantan in Borneo. And on that trip, the first two weeks, we did 500 miles. So, you know, you think about that for a minute, 500 miles in two weeks. That's That's a pretty slow average speed. And that's basically because it was all bridge building, winching. You know, you were you were basically um, just dragging that car through the mud. And then, um, you know, as a as a photographer, it's great because you actually there photographing the guys doing stuff. But but equally, you sometimes need to put the camera down and actually help get the cars through because you know there are times when you think we're never going to make this. So um, you know that that was something that I think was quite typical on every almost every Camel Trophy, to be honest. You know, obviously, sadly, I wasn't there at the beginning, but. As part of the research of this book, which has been great, um, I've spoken to to many, many people that were on those early events and, and throughout the 80s and the 90s. And that was the theme. You know, the theme was getting those vehicles through, getting the teams through in almost impossible odds. You know, the challenge of just getting the cars through those those obstacles, uh, mostly mostly natural or, or, you know, broken bridges, you know, sort of, because um, one of the things that Camel Trophy always did was they always stuck to um, existing trails or tracks. But in the jungle, of course, a trail that's not used soon gets absolutely covered up by um, creepers and, you know, fallen trees and everything else. And that's what we were finding. You know, there were the track we were on was a road, but, you know, it hadn't been used for a long time. So as a result, you had many, many trees across and also uh, bridges that were just you know, destroyed because the, the monsoon or the rains would come, wash the bridges away, and that's it. You can't get through. So um, the only way is to you know, get uh, a couple of hundred guys and, and girls and, and winches and sand track and you know, just get, those, uh, get that bridge built, which was, which was pretty cool. Let me give people an idea of the basics for the Campbell Trophy. So 
It began in 1980 in three Jeeps in Brazil, traversing, I think, a distance of a thousand miles. And from that very first event, it grew for the next 18 or so years into a bigger, more arduous and more challenging. I mean, they tried, I think they tried to top themselves every year, but so the idea was two person teams from many, many different countries come together in a remote location, Brazil, Sumatra, Papua New Guinea, Borneo. And this is a largely off-road and sometimes trail cutting slog of a thousand miles or more. It may take three to four weeks to complete. And thousands of people applied for the chance to do this every year. And in fact, I think at one point they were having like a million applications a year. And the key here too is that everyone who applied had to be an amateur. So you take seemingly ordinary people and just have a go. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's, you've summed it up really well, actually. That's exactly what it was. So the first um, couple of years, in fact, 1980 and 81 was actually a German-only competition. So it was only teams from what was then West Germany. But uh, in 82, it was opened up. And in fact, the first US team took part in uh, 1982. Um, in fact, it was uh, two US teams. And um, yeah, that was the first year there was international competitors with also some uh, Italians and um, some Dutch. That, and then obviously, as you say, the event just almost got a life of its own throughout the 80s it was it became bigger and bigger and then um in the late 80s it, it sort of really became you know something quite big because they changed the whole competitive structure became a little bit more formalized because prior to then it had been very much you know what they call special tasks which were these sort of almost like ad hoc little mini competitions that was sort of part of the the event. But in 87, there was a bit of a drama where they, the teams actually had uh, effectively a bit of a mutiny or some teams got more competitive than others and sort of, if you like, lost the sort of um, gentlemanly sort of sense of competition that was the sort of the basis of the event. So as a result, more of a structure was put in in the late 80s uh, by the organisation. And um, that's when it started to become, if you like, I mean, it's been called the Olympics of off-road. That's one of the sort of titles that's been given. It was always a competitive element, but as you say, the ethos of Camel Trophy was getting from point A to point B, the start to the finish, and you know you didn't know what you were going to experience in between and um, each year was different you know again caused by the different locations so for example in 91 it was in Tanzania and Burundi and there the teams were horrendously behind schedule because there was a type of mud called black cotton which is effectively this sort of mud that's um, vegetation and sand and sort of it's all sort of goes into this incredible like sticky soup that sucks the car in so it gets stuck onto its chassis and then of course the other problem is this vegetation then sort of tangles up amongst the drivetrain and so it really is the sort of the perfect storm of horrendous driving <laughs> and, uh, and obviously the teams had to get themselves through so yeah, I think at one point the convoy was spread out over several hundred kilometers and they were sort of three days behind so the first crews were driving through no problem but of course as each car came through the conditions got worse and it became harder and harder so um, yeah obviously all this is discussed in the book so it's, it's great to be able to to tell some of these stories which you know I'm talking about an event in 1991 which is 30 years ago so yeah, there was obviously a lot of media coverage done at the time but that's sort of now forgotten about. And I wanted to revisit some of these stories and, and actually showcase some of these amazing photographs as well, which is why I did the book. Yeah. Let's talk about the genesis of it too, because obviously having been there multiple times, you had very special memories of it, but was the book a slow burn? I mean, is this something that you'd you'd thought about for a long time or? Yeah, it definitely. I mean, it was one of those things I'm, I'm a, you know, as well as being a professional photographer and 
working for Land Rover. I'm also a, very much a Land Rover enthusiast. You know, I, it's part of my DNA, basically, the, the green oval. So for me to be working at Camel Trophy was amazing. But you know, when the event finished and, you know, sort of, you know, time passes and I sort of look back at it and said, yeah, you know, I want to, I want to tell that story because, you know, obviously because I worked amongst the teams that had been part of it for many, many years, you know, I'd heard some of the stories and, you know, the old around the campfire type stuff and also experienced it. And I thought, you know, these are stories that need to be told. And, you know, in the case, particularly of the, the guys that were working in the early eighties, you know, these guys were in their thirties and, and even forties. Uh, back in 1980 so they're now sort of in their sort of mid 70s and and early 80s so unfortunately uh, you know time moves on and obviously these stories eventually disappear so uh, with the people that that are there to tell them so I was really keen on getting those those stories and in fact it's tragic but um, there's a a few people that have already passed um, before I got to speak to them but for example there's one gentleman Peter Bearder who ran the communication setup and he he helped a lot with some of the stories from a chapter about the the communications of the infrastructure Uh, and sadly I spoke to him in um, April and he passed uh, away in May so yeah great to have actually been able to get those stories from him before he um, before he left us. Yeah, the years roll on very quickly. You know, you turn around and and uh, you're looking at your youth in the rearview mirror. Exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. It, it's humbling. You've kind of given us an idea of how difficult some of the going was, but you know, it's not as if they simply let them loose. I mean, even though these are amateur competitors, they did have some training in England at at Land Rover's proving grounds. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that because it's it's quite interesting. One of the things I've really enjoyed about the book is actually looking back and comparing today's world with the world that existed back in the 80s, 90s. And obviously, this was, you think nowadays, we live very much in a, and, and rightly so, in a health and safety, you know, everything is very carefully structured so people don't injure themselves at work or, or while doing trips. But at the time, there was no risk assessments, there were no health and safety things. But actually, there was, but we just didn't know what it was called. We, didn't, we weren't aware of it. And exactly as you say, the, the, the training and selections that took place, and that took place you know, right from the first event where Land Rover was involved in 1981. There was a training session at Eastner Castle, which is one of the, um, the well-known sort of places where Land Rover has been testing its products for many, many years. The Land Rover experts basically took these Camel Trophy competitors, that some of which have maybe never driven a four-wheel drive or off-road before, put them into, into vehicles and basically taught them what to do. Um, as well as that, there was also you know, first aid training, firefighting training, sort of bushcraft skills. So you know, they, they did definitely give the, uh, the competitors the best advice. And of course, inevitably, a lot of the people that were taking part were the right sort of people in the first place. So they were people that had experience on expeditions. Some of them had also obviously been driving off-road before. The sort of the people that, that um, kept themselves safe and had a good time as well. During those trials at Eastner Castle and during all that training, had they decided on everyone? Because it seems to me that that's a test. Who are we really going to take? Yeah, I mean, the selection. So in fact, there is actually a chapter in the book, which is just about selections and training, just because it was so much an important part of the annual Camel Trophy um, experience, if you like. So the event was always sort of generally took place in April, May time, um, which just seemed to work out well with the weather conditions. Maybe it helps to explain the calendar of what, what a typical event was. So there would always be future plans for the events would be taking place at the management office. So they'd be planning two years ahead. 
and they would be recce's and pre-scouts and again there's a there's a, a really nice chapter in there about some of the pre-scouts because they were mini expeditions in themselves and, and there's some great stories from there um so the pre-scout would take place and that would also include a photo shoot which would help to drum up that publicity to get people to enter the entry was generally sort of taking place around about so sort of august september time and then they would make a paper selection so of the you know several thousands and in many countries it was tens and hundreds of thousands of competitors would would compete they would then uh, whittle that down on the paper so for example the questions were you know fairly basic but they wanted to make sure that people could you know swim decently you know had the right sort of attitude towards being outdoors and they needed to make sure that everyone spoke english uh, to a to a good level and anyway, so after that was done then there was a a national selection again depending on the market in italy they actually had up to three national selection weekends uh, for different regions of italy same in france bridge building exercises a run navigation sort of just again just making sure that the people that have, have put that on their on their entry form could actually uh, walk the walk as well as talk the talk and then from those national selections there was an international selection so <laughs> again quite a long process and that's where the as you say the teams would be chosen so they they had uh, generally four individuals would go to these international selections and then of those four only two would be selected but in the later years sort of from about um, 1991 onwards these selections would take place as a group so all the countries would get together with their four um, hopefuls and then those four would then compete amongst themselves effectively to become the winning team which was always quite tough because of course if you formed an allegiance with one person if that person didn't get through what did that mean for the the team dynamic so it was quite an interesting thing to watch and you know i was lucky enough to watch and photograph it for the last 4 years it seems to me that land rover invested a considerable amount of money in this every year i mean it's a lot of preparation and planning and and staffing and well it was it's actually quite interesting because camel trophy was was an event that was actually run by initially obviously rj reynolds and then latterly in the 90s it was more about the clothing the watches camel trophy range of watches uh, boots and adventure wear in 1992 in fact land rover became the co-sponsor of camel trophy prior to that rj reynolds actually purchased the land rovers they were using on the event from land rover Admittedly, they got them for a, a fairly decent price, and they also supplied assistance with Eastner Castle and some of the training. But actually, it was a commercial arrangement. You know, the vehicles were purchased. And in fact, one of the things that I found fascinating when I was doing the research of this book was RJ Reynolds actually looked at other manufacturers in the mid-80s and late-80s, one of which was went quite far, which was, which was Mitsubishi. So the Mitsubishi Pajero did actually wear Camel Trophy um, logos and, and roof rack and was actually used on some of the national selections uh, in Japan and Germany and Italy. So, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting story. You sort of immediately associate Camel Trophy with Land Rovers, but it was almost for a short period in the 80s, it almost became another another brand, which would have been a very different story, which is which I think is fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Very interesting. And by the way, the Pajero is no slouch. It's a good vehicle. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, real, absolutely. Um, very popular in South America, in fact. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, it's interesting when you see the Pajero in its full Camel Trophy regalia. It, it does, look, does look cool. Are you able to walk us through a day on the Camel Trophy? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not, it wasn't really a typical day as such, but you can sort of generally guarantee that you're going to be waking up fairly early if indeed you did actually go to sleep but you know you did generally get your head down a little bit and you know there was a mixture of people tossing up hammocks or you just basically would put sleep in the back of the car or 
you know, on the reef rack on, on, a, on a bivy bag, because of course, generally the events were held in tropical or uh, rainforest conditions. So it was pretty hot and it was pretty humid. So um, that was something that uh, you just had to deal with. Um, so yeah, so obviously the morning would, would start and you'd probably, you know, get out and um, give yourself a brew. Um, so there'd be the uh, the volcano, the Kelly kettle, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yeah, they're, they're great, great bits of kit have a have a cup of tea or a coffee to get you going and then um yeah then it would be a, a bull in the bag wayfarer meal which um you'd probably slap that on the engine because that's uh and in fact i remember the years that i did it was the the 300 tdi diesel which was great because it had a little rubber flap on the top of the of the metal block of the engine primarily there for soundproofing and to look good but actually it was perfect because you could line up four of the wayfarer bore in the bags underneath this this rubber cover that you could lift up put the the bore in the bags underneath the cover would sit over the top hold them nice and steady and of course after uh, you know an hour or so of, of warm engine the, the food would be nice and hot and you could open it up and, and eat away so that was good but yeah so in terms of the actual day you know you would often travel as a convoy um the convoy maybe would be split up into little mini convoys depending on how the going was because obviously if you've got you know sort of 25 30 cars all together it does sort of be quite slow process so they generally sort of tend to split them up into sort of five or tens and you just make your way through there was a road book um which would give you sort of the key directions and you know there would be challenges the recce teams would have obviously driven most of the roads beforehand but on some of the places, so for example, in Kalimantan, the, the routes that we took hadn't been driven by another vehicle for about 20, 20 years, they said. Um, and the teams had actually wrecked it using um, light aircraft. So, you know, looking down and obviously seeing that there was a track in existence is very different from actually physically being on the track, which um, which did make the going interesting. And hence the reason why it was so, so long, those 500 miles in two weeks, just because, you know, what, what, what looks like a track from the air when you're actually down there with your, your wheels on the ground, it's um, it's very different. So, you know, there was times when we were having to um, do a multiple uh, snatch recovery or snatch pull. So where you're basically putting, I think the longest, well, the, the most we did was like six or seven cars together. And the idea being is obviously the first car goes through the mud hole or the, or the obstacle, clears it. And then obviously once it's clear onto the sort of firmer ground, then it's pulling the next car through, which then obviously pulls the next one. And it's sort of like an automotive caterpillar, I guess. Um, and that sort of, uh, that was a, a technique that was often used to get through some of the muddier sections. But if you were the guy at the back, the car at the back, it was quite a hair raising ride because of course you were at the mercy of the five other cars that had gone through. And if they were struggling, they might be going a bit quickly. So yeah, it was sometimes you sort of felt like you were being you know, thrown into these mud holes at really, really breakneck speeds. But, you know, I think they did have a few rollovers and a few sort of uh, moments. But, you know, again, there were never any deaths on Camel Trophy. You know, there were never any really serious injuries. Which is miraculous, I think. If you've ever seen video of the Camel Trophy, there would be eight or ten people hanging off the side of a Defender 110 holding onto the roof rack, trying to balance that vehicle because it's already leaning at 30 degrees and they don't want it to go over and they're trying to get through mud and it's slipping sideways and the tires are spinning. And I mean, it's a different um, era, wasn't it? Yes. And <laughs> I mean, it's a Marshall's nightmare, right? It's exactly the stuff that is a total no-no today. Yes. Well, I think the nice thing is, I think it's one of those things as everyone was, everyone looked after themselves. You know what I mean? There was that sort of group responsibility that you knew that guy was going to look after himself and you were going to look after yourself. And 
somehow it all just sort of came together and worked. You know, the team, as I said to you before, you know, they were there was really excellent training and the selection process you know, helped to make sure that the right sort of people got involved. And there was, you know, there were safety things. So, for example, all the vehicles had um, the full roll cages. Uh, so, you know, and there were cars, obviously, that did end up on their sides uh, on quite a regular basis, largely due to sort of maybe over-enthusiastic driving or badly loaded. So the cars would, would topple over. But, you know, because of the roll cage and, and the structure, it was just a case of putting a winch cable on the top of the roof rack, pulling it back onto its wheels. And and I'm pretty sure, I don't think there was that many cars that they were, there were, there were a few that looked like they shouldn't have finished it, but um, they were, I think pretty much every car that started ended up finishing. It's a fine line sometimes off-road when you need that momentum to carry you through uh, an obstacle and yet at the same time, you're risking a rollover or a shunt against a tree or something. So Exactly. But I think, again, what's quite interesting, what I've really enjoyed about putting this book together is actually looking at how much the world has changed and how much technology has changed and how you know, things are very different. So, for example, you know, you're thinking about uh, Landover products of the of the 80s and 90s you know there were no there was a center diff lock but there was no traction control there was no uh, axle diff locks you know it was it was very much sort of just basic technology you know you you had to as you say you had to use momentum to to get you through whereas of course nowadays you know the the, the modern range of, of Land Rover products has the most amazing sophisticated sort of technology that that brakes wheels to to transfer the power across and you know i've been involved obviously with lots of the development work with the current products photographing it in the early days and when you see some of these things working on ice lakes and in the most you know sticky mud and places where you can barely stand up it's so slippy and yet you you see these these wheels and it's it's almost like a an animal sort of pouring its way through the car is working out those little bits of traction and and the 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 electronics are doing their thing and and the car moves which you know you just couldn't do with a an old model so um again it's it's fascinating to see and i know i maybe be talking too much but one of the things i also wanted to mention which is i really have enjoyed about this book is the change in technology for gps so of course you know gps technology and satellite navigation and google maps and street view and all the things that we now take for granted you have to cast your mind back that these guys in the 80s and 90s you know they didn't have gps so you know navigation was was basically with compass stars and a map so i had some great stories uh, from Ian Chapman, who was the event director from the late 80s through to 96, and he was telling me that when they did the event in 1990, which was in Siberia, that was uh, obviously just as the Soviet Union was falling. So there were no maps. You know, the only map they had was a, a US Air Force map of the area which he said was pretty much a blank sheet of paper. You know, there was, a, there was a few borders marked and some blue lines that were rivers. But apart from that, the guys knew nothing. They didn't know what it was there. So when they did the pre-scout in 1990. It was, it was quite an interesting trip because they, they went down roads that, that just didn't exist on the map. And even the locals didn't know where they went. So it was uh, yeah, quite, a, quite an adventure. If I'm not mistaken, that Siberian camel trophy took them through the taiga. Correct. Which- That's right. And that is notorious for being um, passable only in small windows in the spring and the and the uh, winter and the rest of the year it's either too swampy or just covered in snow. Basically. Right, right, right. Several times you've used the word mud. <laughs> I don't think we can underestimate or overemphasize the mud component in the Camel Trophy because when I think of the event, that's like one of the top three or four things I think of. They say that the Inuit have 
something like 26 words for snow based on whatever condition it's in. And I think that's true in many parts of the world with regard to mud. You mentioned earlier the black cotton. Exactly. Yes. No. That's a that's a classic case. I mean, that's um, one of the um, the guys that was on that event. A chap called Duncan Barber. He describes that as as one of those things. You know, it's a bit like malaria. Once once you experience it, you don't forget it. Black cotton was was definitely the one of the one of the sort of most fiendishly <laughs> nasty uh, types of mud known to man. But um, yeah, I think you know there was there was lots of different types of mud. I think it would have been it would have been good if we'd have actually done like a little uh, say a mud guide, different types of mud. But having said that, I mean I don't know if you've ever been to Eastner, but if you don't if you haven't, you should should go there. I mean Eastner in itself has has a very unique type of mud. The, you know the camel cars just look fantastic when they're covered in it. That paint colour sanglo, which was um, which was a 1970s British Leyland shade that sort of became adopted as the colour of camel trophy and lasted throughout. You know that colour just looks fantastic when it's got mud splattered all over it. And in fact, you see the vehicles you know lined up at the beginning of the event, all absolutely you know brand new out the factory, showroom fresh, perfect, pristine things. And then, of course, at the end of the event, they're looking somewhat less pristine, shall we say. I actually think sand glow is better when dirty. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a quite, in fact, it's quite an amazing color. In fact, again, I write about this in the book. You know, I can't imagine Camel Trophy being another color. Um, you know, it's it just looked right in the jungle conditions, but also it looked in the later years. You know, we there was events in the snow, obviously in South America, um, and then obviously in the desert in '94. The, the the convoy went through the Atacama, which you know is is one of the driest places um, known to man. That's right. In fact, NASA has done Mars training in the Atacama because it most closely resembles the Martian surface. There we go. So. So we now we know that Sanglo vehicles will look great on Mars then. So that's, that's good news. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's it. They just look fantastic in all conditions, in the jungle, in the desert. Yeah, in Mongolia, we went to the Gobi Desert. And again, the, the Sanglo just look, looked fantastic. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a great color. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Hey, if you're enjoying this interview with Nick Dimbleby, you might also like episode seven, which is called Land Rover, The Accidental Icon. It's really the origin story of the Land Rover, and here's a clip. Explorers, oil companies, the United Nations, and even Queen Elizabeth herself were all driving Land Rovers. The reputation of the Land Rover was made by people both ordinary and legendary. In 1950, an Australian-born writer named Barbara Toy made a bet in a London pub that she would drive to the Middle East and back. Before long, she set out alone in a second-hand 80-inch Land Rover, christening the car Pollyanna. The little car took her from Gibraltar to Baghdad. Toy made at least seven long-range expeditions in Land Rovers over the next 40 years. Africa, Australia, Asia, North America, and mostly the deserts of the world. Check out that great episode and the rest of the back catalog, and thanks for listening. And if you want to help keep more great stories coming, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage, and your support will definitely help. And now back to my interview with Nick Dimbleby. So Nick, looking at footage and still photography of 
the Campbell Trophy over the years. One thing that sticks out to me is how hard these convoys are driving in very close quarters. They're not leaving more than two vehicle length between them at times. And even going through very muddy obstacles, very off-camber terrain, they're just hammering through right behind each other. If people aren't familiar with it, or maybe they think that the Camel Trophy was sort of uh, uh, just playtime, it was legitimate, highly technical, intense off-roading. For sure. Although, to be fair, I think looking at some of those video sequences where the vehicles are running very close together, I suspect they might be a little bit more staged for camera. And <laughs> okay. Because uh, just because it's, you know, if you think about it, you know, if you were, if you were having to drive in that close proximity for so long, you know, it's going to be quite exhausting and you're going to end up with a, a really dirty uh, uh, windscreen. So, the, you know, we did we did occasionally set up the odd big convoy shot was done for the cameras uh, inevitably because as you can imagine, obviously the event was, you know, it, we had to come back with amazing film footage and, and photography because otherwise it would have been a great event for the, you know, sort of 150 people that were on the convoy. But obviously, you know, if you don't share that experience and that footage with the wider world, it's great for the 150 people, but not so great for everyone else. So yeah, so there was there was a little bit of setup stuff, but you know, it wasn't a, a fake event. There was, you know, proper hardship. It was tough going, you know, you, you can't stage that. Why would you? Why would you want to? You know, the conditions and the and the tracks and everything were there. So that was what made it fun. You didn't know what you were going to experience um, on a typical day because you, you were heading into the unknown. That was always a something that was quite special. I'm glad you said that because looking back at some of the footage, I thought to myself, now, are they playing to the camera or is this simply just how competitive these teams were? Of course, they're working together the the entire event to get each other through, but also at the end of the day, they want to win as a two-person team. Yes. I mean, that was, but I think what was quite good is, is they changed that format. So in the in the 90s they generally had uh, competition sections or days that were at the beginning at the end and occasionally in the middle of the event that's where you were competing against your fellow teams but when it came to the convoy drive you were all on it together you know it was very much a the famous team spirit you know that was what it was all about i think one of the things that you just touched on there before a lot of the the some of the iconic images that that you see and also the film footage some of those were actually photographed and filmed on some of the pre-scout events. Particularly, there's a, a sequence with a, a chap that was actually in a pretty much a submerged 90. I think people are very familiar with that, you know, with the, this guy waving from inside the cab and it's, it's completely full with water. That was actually a staged set of photos that was done on the pre-scout by a, a chap called Wolfgang Drazen, who was the photographer. But, you know, it was done for real. It just happened to be sort of set up for the cameras, you know, and the car was, was winched out. And once they'd sort of, you know, drained the water out of the, um, out of the plugs, it was, you know, crank the engine and off they went. They cracked on. Let's talk about the vehicles because Land Rover used their entire model range throughout the history of the the Camel Trophy, beginning with the the Range Rover two door, and then working through the two different wheelbases of the the ninety and the one ten, which later became rebadged as the Defender, of course. And then I believe they ended with the Freelander, which is a model that's not with us anymore. But those vehicles bookended one of their most successful models in the nineties, which was the Land Rover Discovery. I'm curious if you have any insight as to what Land Rover gained from an engineering or construction standpoint from the trophy. I suspect that they had some lessons, but I also know that the vehicles were really good to begin with. 
Correct. Yeah. I mean, they were basically standard. Um, the, the drivetrain, if you like, was completely as the you could buy from the showroom. They were mainly, as you say, to start off with, they were the V8s, the, the Range Rover two-door from the, the early 80s, 81 and 82. And in fact, uh, again, part of the research of the book, which I found out, the vehicles that were used in 1981, they were actually reused in 1982. And there's actually a famous bit of footage. If you, if you look on YouTube, there's a bit where you see the guys with a, a hat or a bowl or something with all the car keys in it. I remember watching it on YouTube like many years ago thinking, why are they getting their keys out of this bowl? And I now know why, because it was potluck if you had one of the new cars or if you had one of the old cars that you know, let's face it, even though they've been reworked, had quite a history. So um, so that's why that bowl of keys was done as a, um, a sort of a lucky dip of who had the best cars. Anyway, moving on. So that was the first year. Then in 83 was Series 3, which was the old leaf-sprung Land Rovers. And that was actually the team vehicles were the 88 short wheelbase. And then journalists and support crews had 109s, the long wheelbase. So they were the, the vehicles for 83. And again, you know, they were pretty much standard just with the roof racks. They had a, a winch on the front, not a worn one at the time. And then it was, um, yeah, Dunlop track grip tires. But apart from that, they were pretty much standard vehicles. Yeah, I don't know how I forgot the Series 3 in there. That was the last of the Series 3s, right? And then transitioned into the coil sprung 90 and 110. Uh, series 3 production ended in what? 84. 84, yeah. So... Yeah, so it was so that was that was a weird, not weird, but it was a transition. So in '83, the 110 was launched, but the short wheelbase was still kept as the 88, and then the year later in '84, the is when the 90 came out. So um, even though the 110 had been announced, the 80, the the Series Three was um, was all you could buy basically, and probably all they could get because of course the the cars were still very much early prototypes at that stage. So um, yeah, so '84 was the 110, the first coil sprung Land Rovers. And then 85, as you rightly say, was the short wheelbase 90. I think that's the vehicle that a lot of people sort of have a bit of a soft spot for. The the short wheelbase 90 Camel version, I think, is just a cool looking truck. You know, it just looks great, I always think. And um, yeah, that was 85 and 86. 87 was back to Range Rover again. So that was the four door with the, with the turbo diesel. And then in 88, it was back to the 110. Um, and then 89 was the um, 110 again. And that had a turbo diesel. So they put the turbo on, which made it really, you know, a little bit extra, <laughs> extra powerful. Um, and then, yeah, 1990 was, was the launch of Discovery. And of course, throughout up to 97, the Discovery was the Camel Trophy vehicle of choice. And I think probably, I think made Discovery it just basically reinforced its reputation as a Land Rover because again think back to the late 80s early 90s when the Discovery was launched you know Land Rover was a company that made the Land Rover the 110 and the 90 and the Range Rover that was it that's all they made so this Discovery suddenly pops up and people are like well you know what is it is it a Land Rover is it a Range Rover and obviously it was a bit of a combination of the two wasn't it you know it was it was not as luxurious as a Range Rover but it was more comfortable than a Land Rover but I think the the Camel Trophy helped to reinforce its off-road credentials, which was perfect. You know, I mean, putting it out there in Siberia in 1990, you know, the car was only launched, I think, four months before, six months before in September 89 in Frankfurt. So, um, so yeah, to have this new vehicle out there driving, you know, in some of the, the toughest tracks on, on the, one of the hardest, uh, most notorious competitions in the world was a great example. But you did say about, you know, how was the, the Camel Trophy used for engineering? Ian Chapman, who was the event manager at the time in 1990, told me a great story about the discoveries in Siberia. So 
bear in mind these cars that were in Siberia, which was, I think, Siberia was in May 1990, I think. So they would have been built at Land Rover in the in the latter half of 89, which was the first batch of discoveries being made. Anyway, Ian tells the story that on that event, the, the rear doors became more and more hard to open as the event progressed. And what was happening is they were getting caught on the, the bottom bumper. So it's a side opening rear door. And this, this was basically fouling the um, plate that sat on top of the bumper. And it was fouling that. Anyway, when they got back, Land Rover sort of, as, as Ian put it, fed those data into their computer system. And they actually found out the, the rear body mounts were actually sagging under the hard conditions, which then made the door not open properly. And in fact, the, the body mounts were actually changed on the car as a result. And so Camel Trophy had a direct input into the, uh, the development of the car. So um, that's good. And I think it's the same, you know, every year you had technicians from Land Rover that were, would go along and they would have to, I guess, file reports. And, you know, the vehicles would probably come back to Solihull afterwards and were taken apart to see which bits were causing issues. So, um, yeah, they definitely did use it as a accelerated lifetime <laughs> vehicle usage, you know, because that's not how most people uh, treat their Land Rovers, is it? No, absolutely not. And uh, yeah, I would call it extreme wear testing. Yes, definitely, Ex- definitely. I know that in England, you know, you have a strict MOT test to pass every year. And my understanding is that the discoveries rusted out before they wore out in any other way, whether mechanically or otherwise. Um, and a lot of them were broken up for parts and the TDI engines shipped over here, in fact, when they became uh, legal for sale. But But yeah, you just don't see the discovery much anymore. And um, I think they've become a classic now. I think I, I agree. In fact, funny enough, I was talking to a, a friend the other day just about that exact thing. You know, I mean, the oldest discovery is, yeah, 32 years old now. So, you know, that's reasonably old and um, I think affords it classic status. It just worked. And uh, so it's been a while, actually, since I've, I've driven a Series 1 Discovery, and I'm, I've got a real hankering to go and drive one because um, I do remember it being actually quite a nice thing. The driving position was good. The, you had a manual gearbox with the TDI engine. It was, it was a nice vehicle to drive. It was actually a, effectively a Range Rover that would been rebodied. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of money at the time for reinvestment in new products. So the, the engineers were tasked to say, right, we want this third Land Rover, but we're not going to give you much money to do it so here's a Range Rover go and make it work so that's what they did so you've told us a little bit about the vehicles that were used for the competition but there's also a fleet of vehicles for use in support roles and I wonder how the support roles worked every day vehicles are being damaged possibly mechanically disabled how much repair and support are they being offered by the event staff there was always uh, Land Rover technicians on the event and they'll, they'll give me a big Backslap for saying this, but I think they're some of the guys that worked the hardest on the event because they had to drive the event like everyone else. And they were generally, uh, I think most years there were four technicians in two cars. You had two workshop units and these guys basically drove the convoy, had to get their vehicles through just like everyone else. But obviously when everyone else got to where everyone was going to finish for the night. Everyone else would get their tents out, their hammocks out, you know, maybe uh, get a brew and have some food. These guys were then having to say, right, you know, people would come over to the workshop and say, look, I'm having a little bit of problem with my rear diff or my, my half shaft doesn't feel quite right at the front. So these guys would have to then just, you know, lay down the mud and do the work, change it. So often they would be the ones that would be, you know, last to bed if they even got to bed because they'd be doing the maintenance on other teams' vehicles. So 
they had to work pretty hard but equally they did have some really cool vehicles so the workshop units were built specifically for them to have and in the later years they were discoveries that were sort of fully kitted out with all the tools and everything else but i think in 1990 i think it was one of the coolest ones which was the the 127 the extra long wheelbase um land rover it wasn't called defender at that point but um what we now call the defender and they had quad tech rear bodies and they just looked stunning the only problem was they were incredibly heavy so they basically just got bogged down all the time so whereas it was really handy to have all the tools and all the parts and all the stuff you needed to repair the vehicles it was a nightmare getting them through so those vehicles only appeared for one year then in 1990 and then they went back to having 110s which some had these side panels that opened up like a box and they had all the tools and sort of you know vice and all sorts of things in there they were really quite cool vehicles and of course the ambulance that's another special vehicle that went on the convoy every year there was an ambulance and that was was generally manned by a, a very nice chap called dr mike irani from 1991 uh, onwards he was he was the event medic absolutely unbelievable bloke incredible you know vastly knowledgeable and, and just uh one for some great stories and then the, the, finally the other special vehicle was the um communications vehicle which again was the way that the convoy communicated with the outside world uh i mean this is, sounds very archaic now but there was a fax machine um in the in the back of this <laughs> and of course they had um people from the pr departments who would obviously tell the story of the day and obviously the only way to get that back from the middle of the jungle was to use a, a fax machine uh, and a, a satellite dish and that was that was cutting edge stuff you know using satellite phones in the middle of the jungle to transmit faxes was it was the latest thing whereas of course nowadays you just probably get on your iphone and, and send a text message that namibian event i was telling you about earlier we had wi-fi at every camp you know that's just yeah. that's what, what you expect nowadays we're so spoiled we've gone soft yeah, there's a little bit of that, I think, maybe, you know. Circling back just for one moment, the support vehicles and the ambulance, those were all built by Land Rover Special Vehicles, right? So all the Camel Trophy vehicles were actually done by Special Vehicles. So the vehicles were built on the production line as as normal vehicles, but obviously painted Sanglo, and then they would be taken to this department, which in the early years was actually called the SID, the SID, uh, the Special Installation Department, where the vehicles were fitted with the roof racks and the roll cages. I think it was 200 hours worth of work on every car, so it was quite quite a significant amount of work. Work. And as I say, you know, even though the transmission was standard, there were lots of extra features. So, for example, the winches and all that stuff had to be properly wired in. You know, you had all the extra. The, I mean, that's the iconic thing, isn't it? The roof lights of the of the Camel Trophy vehicles, and all those were wired in to operate on a special switch. You know, there were other things like the internal map reading light. There was a, a light socket inside, a, a voltmeter. You know, lots of lots of very special equipment they were and they were you know they were really nicely done and as you say the special vehicles department were the ones that that did all that um and obviously produced the 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 specials as well as of course another one i forgot was the defender high caps which were used as the raft units in the early 90s and they were they were really cool looking things all that was done by special vehicles which is now still very much part of, of land rover's business but i think nowadays more you know one-off bespoke vehicles for customers we've just done some work with the range rover ultimate a couple of months ago which was the it is the, the last uh, incarnation of the current range rover it's good to see that still going on and i must have i've always had a bit of a soft spot for some of the uh, more unusual looking vehicles let's speak a little bit about the format of the book i mean this isn't full narrative because obviously you're a photographer and many of your images are in the book as well as images of other photographers throughout the years of the trophy so how would you characterize the format of the book just so people get an idea 
Yeah, of course. I mean, it was something that I thought about because it was, you know, the obvious thing was just to tell the history, but actually there were so many other stories to tell. So just giving you a very brief uh, chapter guide. So the first chapter is is basically introduction to the people. It's it's the key players, the people that, if you like, uh, you'll meet along the, the story. Second chapter is what you could say is the second most important thing of any camel trophy, the vehicles. Talking about the whole history of, of the vehicles from the Ford U50, which is the, the Brazilian built jeeps that they used in the first event all the way to the um the ribs that were used on the the event in 2000 looking at the build and you know, a little bit of technical specification and chapter three we start with the first three years 80 81 82 83 um which is you know that was the sort of the german era and then uh moving on to 84 through to 87 um and that was a, another little sort of an, an era that sort of was almost self-contained and then 88 89 which was that transition phase when they went from this competition that was less um it was more sort of you know part of it whereas the a more formally based competition that used a, a company called um world championship promotions which was owned by a chap called Terry Harriman, who was a very famous rally navigator. So he brought in a lot of his expertise in, in rally competition to really formalize the competitive structure. And then the next chapter is 1990 to um, 96, which was the, the years of discovery, basically. And of course, all the way through the narrative is about the event. But equally, I'm talking about what was going on behind the scenes, the way that the event and also the management was changing. Um, RJ Reynolds was being less involved. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a narrative that goes through all the way through. And then uh, the last three camel trophies, how the event sort of came to an end. Following that, the next chapter talks about training and selection, quite a big part of the event, um, even though it wasn't sort of something that you necessarily think about. But again, some amazing old photography of you know, very early Land Rovers, some of the early teams at Eastner Castle, you know, some great fashions, you know, from the 80s. It's really cool stuff. And then pre-scout, a lot of the people that said there, this this was the real camel trophy because this was the the small bunch of generally the event management and also some of the ex-competitors that were invited back you know the the guys that really made a, an impression on the um, on the event management team they would be invited back to sort of help with the the pre-scout again some pretty uh, interesting stories including um the pre-scout of an event that never happened so there was actually a pre-scout in the himalayas the camel trophy almost went to india but for various reasons it never happened you have to buy the book to find out but um <laughs> but it was an incredible story because they uh, they decided they weren't going to do the event but very late in the day so literally ian chapman flew from india to kenya to go and do a recce to make the event that actually became the tanzania burundi event but they literally pulled it out the bag in um, about seven or eight months so it was you know pretty impressive stuff and a good and a great story again why it all happened and then the penultimate chapter is about the infrastructure, the way the technology have changed, you know, the sort of the communications teams, and obviously something that's very close to my own heart, which is the photographic team and the video crews as well. So spoke to my colleagues that worked on, on the photography, a chap called Lee Farrant, who ran the photographic operation. He was great, you know, some amazing stories because he ran it from 1990 to the end. He shot something along the lines of 10,000 rolls of film on Camel Trophy. It's hard to imagine nowadays with digital technology and, and mobile phone cameras and everything else. But you, know, you had no idea what photographs you'd taken until you got back home and, and got it processed, which when you think about it now is, is, is crazy. But as someone that shot film for, for many years at the start of my career, it's not so mad. Um, you know, with modern eyes, you look at it and go, God, that was so archaic. But that was what was available at the time, you know. And then the final chapter, you know, if we've not run out of breath, is about the legacy. 
the event finished in 2000, but obviously Land Rover kept going with adventure travel. And it looks at some of the things like G4 Challenge. There was an event called Defender Challenge, obviously Trek, which is very much from the US. And obviously there's other amazing stories about people that own old Camel Trophy vehicles and then have a whole life of adventure subsequent to the event. You know, some of these guys have done incredible round the world trips, trips to Africa, multiple trips to Africa in Camel Trophy vehicles. And you know, it's really amazing to hear some of these stories and, and what makes the vehicles so special. The spirit lives on. So yeah, there's a lot packed in. We've, I think it's 330 odd pages. <laughs> It's a labor of love, I can assure you. Well, after all, you have called it the definitive history, and it sounds like it's going to deliver. I'm very excited to read it. And that was a great teaser synopsis for us. Do you think anything will ever rival this event, Nick? Because this was truly an amateur event. Yes, very much so. I mean, that's that actually, I think, is, is something that I think maybe almost got lost a little bit in the, in the in time but you're absolutely right you know this was um there was there was no prize money people didn't get paid to take part you know people quit their jobs so in fact as a as a thing it certainly didn't make you any money but it's it's a, a phrase that's often used but you know money couldn't buy you a place on camel trophy that was something that i think made the event very special the only way you got in was by doing your best and basically impressing the uh, people that that chose the the team so all the people that were there were there because they really wanted to be and they were really driven and they were very special people. So I think in answer to your question, you know, can there ever be another Camel Trophy? It's quite a difficult one because I think the world has changed a lot, you know. And you think about the, you know, what, what it meant to travel back in the early 80s. Uh, in fact, there's another gentleman that helped me a lot, a gentleman called Fred Stafford, who's a journalist, photojournalist in the US. And he sent me an absolutely extraordinary collection of transparencies. I actually managed to get hold of an article that he did for Car and Driver in 1982. Got in touch with him and he said, you know, I haven't looked at those photographs for nearly 40 years. He said, but I know I've got them in the loft somewhere. So he went upstairs, dug them out and you'll see in the book, I mean, the, the pictures are absolutely extraordinary. But when you look at them, it was a different world. You know, it was in Papua New Guinea. You know, there was no communications. People didn't have cars. It's just a different world. Whereas nowadays, even, you know, remote places like Papua New Guinea, Mongolia, people are connected, you know. So I think in terms of actually having that sort of real adventure, then it's probably not going to be quite the same. But having said that, you know, overland travel is still an adventure in a different way. You never know what's around the corner. You know, there's, there's always that excitement of getting up and having that unexplored territory to go and look at. You know, I, I look forward to going to some new places and um, hopefully at the wheel of a Land Rover at some point in the next few years, you know less of an exploration in a, a global sense, but more a journey of your own self-exploration. And I think that's where travel for anyone is really good because that's where you learn about yourself and learn about other people, other cultures by going to experience it. Long may it continue. The book is called Camel Trophy, The Definitive History by Nick Dimbleby from Porter Press. The book is available for pre-order now and will be available everywhere at the end of September. You can find Nick at nickdimbleby.com. You're on Instagram at nickdimbleby. Does that pretty much sum it up? That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. Well, this has been fun. Oh, thank you. It's been really, really enjoyable having a chat. All right, mate. Thank you very much. All right. No, pleasure. Cheers. It's been great. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me five stars and a quick review. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way. Always grateful for that. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>